AIJ Cast, a podcast featuring conversations and performances at the intersection of art, inspiration, and justice. I'm your host, Martha Ames Sanders. On this episode, part one of a roundtable conversation on Pittsburgh Theological Seminary's new Risking Faithfully cohort, which is part of their doctorate of ministry program. In the conversation, I'm joined by Leanna K. Fuller, Associate Professor of Pastoral Care at Pittsburgh Theological Seminary, Jennifer Watley Maxell, Program Curator for the Ministry Collaborative, who is partnering with Pittsburgh Seminary in this cohort. Jennifer is also co-founder of the Breakthrough Fellowship, a church in Atlanta, and Ben Johnston Crace, co-planter of Farm Church in Durham, North Carolina. The four of us got a chance to talk through the magic of not Zoom. Leanna Fuller, Jennifer Maxell, Ben Johnson Crace, welcome to AIJ Cast. Thank you. Thanks. Hi. It's good to be here. I want to start with an overview of this program. So, Dr. Fuller, could you give us a sense of what this program, what this cohort is about? Sure. Well, a doctor of ministry in general is really a professional degree for people who are in ministry, have been in ministry for a while, and who are wanting to really go deeper um, with their ministry and also in study, in collaboration with peers, and just finding a learning community to support them in their ministry. And this cohort really grew out of another cohort that we already had at Pittsburgh Seminary that's also called Risking Faithfully. It was sort of the first iteration of this particular program. And when the pandemic hit, some of us at the seminary started thinking about whether it might not be good to try another cohort with this same general theme of risking faithfully, but focusing in on this idea of disruption, because I think all of us would say that right now disruption is a major feature of our lives in almost every sector of our lives. And for ministry leaders, of course, disruption is not new. Ministry leaders, particularly in this country over the last maybe 20 or 30 years, have been wrestling with changes in social dynamics, in people's participation in religious communities and things of that nature. So disruption is not a new thing, but when we started thinking about our next cohort for the Doctor of Ministry program, we just started thinking disruption is really more real now than it ever has been before. So we wanted to sort of lean into that concept, if you will, and explore what is the potential here? Because I think so often when there's disruption in our lives in some way or another, we tend to focus on what's been lost Mm. uh, rather than what the opportunity is. So Mm. that's really kind of the idea behind this cohort is inviting ministry leaders to think about what are the possibilities that are opened up now because of this disruption rather than what are all the things or just focusing on all the things that have been lost during this time. It's interesting because I think a lot of our focus can tend to be on the technological disruptions of Mm -hmm. this moment. Um, the fact that like churches, for example, are, are moving online mm-hmm. or, you know, extreme social distancing situations. But when we're talking about disruption, we're talking about bigger things. And particularly in 2020 here in the United States, we're also talking about a raised heightened awareness around racial injustice and calls for yes. justice and the disruption that that means for the status quo. I, I'm assuming that that's part of this program's vision as well. Absolutely. So the disruption, as I said, was really kind of sparked. This idea was really sparked by the pandemic itself. But the pandemic, of course, came along with, at the same time, some of these really egregious examples of racial injustice in our society. 
And of course, those two things are also related because sure. the pandemic has not affected all communities in the same ways. And communities of color have been much more deeply affected by this virus than others. So all of those things were really in our minds as we were thinking about that. So um, yes, in terms of the cohort itself, not only are we thinking about disruption sort of in a more general way, but also we want to dig into this idea of decentering whiteness and try to think about how disruption is an opportunity. So instead of focusing on the violence and the things that are happening that seem so threatening right now in our culture, instead we want to focus on what does that reveal and what does that invite us into? Mm. A more just way of being is what we're hoping to explore. Reverend Maxell, I want to bring you in here because the Ministry Collaborative, you are on staff of the Ministry Collaborative, and you are partnering with Pittsburgh Seminary and bringing this cohort to reality. Can you talk a little bit about the Ministry Collaborative's role in this process? Sure. The Ministry Collaborative is an organization that encompasses several hundred pastors and clergy people from across the country. We have many different areas that we focus on. We have cohorts of pastors. We do webinars. We do all kinds of things to support pastors. Kind of think of ourselves as like uh, pastors for pastors Mm. um, and clergy people. And so we have been in deep discussion and discernment with hundreds of fellow clergy people across the country, not just when the pandemic started, but before it. And what we started noticing was that even before the pandemic started, there were starting to be certain calls in ministry. There was starting to be a shift in focus with clergy and what they were wanting, desiring, what they were seeking, what they were missing in their lives, and the needs that they were expressing to us. And um, when the pandemic hit, when all the racial injustice things hit, that call just got louder. Mm. And so it really kind of brought to a head some things that we had already been talking about and thinking about beforehand. So when this opportunity came, it really was just seemed like a perfect fit to be able to really do some of the things that we had been talking about Mm. and that we heard um, our fellow clergy people from across the country asking for. I'm curious because one of the phrases that is used in describing this cohort is the phrase disruptive pedagogy. What, what is disruptive pedagogy? What does that look like? When I think of disruptive pedagogy, I think back to Bell Hooks, who talked about it as a practice of freedom. Mm. And when I think of disruptive pedagogy, what I really think about is focusing and giving a louder platform to voices on the margin Mm. and looking to alternate sources for learning, teaching, discernment, wisdom. We have very much in education circles been centered in this kind of Western, white, historically based practice of teaching theology. Mm. It's been very much geared towards I would say vocation, so preparing people for a job, as opposed to preparing people for meaningful work in the world, Mm. believing that if we prepare clergy to be practitioners of freedom, if we prepare people to be justice-oriented, then the vocation will come. And so when we talk about disruptive pedagogy, we are talking about educating ourselves to that end. And it really starts 
as a function of, I think, self-actualization. It starts in the individual and grows out as opposed to starting out with alternate sources of knowledge and wisdom. But it really starts with the individual and really disrupting their personal outlook, their assumptions, questioning some of their assumptions, and then growing outwardly from there. I mean, I just agree really with everything Jennifer said. And I would emphasize that piece that she mentioned there at the end about individuals learning to question their own assumptions, their own frameworks, they're bringing their own worldviews. I think most of us who teach would like to think that when students leave our classroom at the end of a semester or the end of a course, that they're different somehow. And that's really, to me, what disruptive pedagogy is. It's not letting people stay the same, but rather asking them to be challenged by what they're encountering. And as Jennifer said, the kinds of resources we can offer to students have the potential to be more disruptive if we do offer alternate sources of knowledge. Hmm. But I think this piece about wisdom is so important. Asking students to cultivate the capacities for discernment and wisdom and justice making, that's really what I think we're after in this program is not just sort of providing knowledge or content in some way, but inviting people into a journey that will transform them. When I think of things that are happening in the wider church around preparing pastors and leaders to serve or to up their game, there's an assumption underlying everything that the system is working. (laughs) And if we just help people get better at it, manage their time better, write better sermons, have better pastoral care skills. And I'm not, I don't mean to belittle any of those things, but the assumption underneath it all that the system is working is flawed. It's a tweaking. Yeah. If we just tweak a few things like, oh, you know, there has been a cascade of mistrust in institutions, including and especially religious institutions over the past 50 years. But if we just tweak a few things, we can write this ship, you know, like that is so far from reality. And yet it's the default assumption a lot of us make when we think about becoming better leaders and churches, echoing everything that my colleagues just said and saying too, that a disruptive pedagogy says, no, actually, this isn't about fixing the system. It's by having an entirely different conversation about ministry and about where we're going and what God is up to in the world and how we keep up with the Holy One. Mm -hmm. And that is radically different and it's letting go of so many assumptions that we make about ministry and and decentering whiteness is at the heart of all of that of all the ways that i mean if we were to begin to dismantle the tower of what is normative for ministry at the very center and the bottom of that tower there is this idea that whiteness is normative Mm. and to take that out and not just simply just remove it but to dissect it and look at it and say, we are decentering this reality in this new way of thinking has got to be, it's every class, it's every, it was kind of fun to create an entire demon program and say, all of these things, they're not units, they're not classes, they're not books. They are threads that we want to weave through the entire experience. Hmm. I And let's ju- jump on that, talking about decentering whiteness. I mean, 
as we're having this conversation, three of the four of us on this conversation present as white. So how do we faithfully interrogate that notion of whiteness, especially when white folk are involved in the conversation? Well, I think part of it goes back to, again, you know, the pedagogy, you know, and being very intentional about what we name as our objectives and our goals that one of the things people have to be prepared to do in this program consistently and throughout is to confront their own assumptions, biases, things that they have held near and dear, what we consider as the grounding of our understanding of the world, our theology, all of that. And, you know, I want to say that it's not just white people's work. You know, that this is Black people's work. This is everybody's work because the centering of whiteness is so, has embedded in every part it's of pervasive, our society. Yeah. Yes, and all of our systems, it's everywhere. So it's work that we each have to do. And I think to the extent that we are very intentional about the literature, the textbooks, the people, everything that we have compiled and thought about is done with this idea in mind that decentering whiteness is one of our top priorities and goals for this program. Jennifer Watley Maxell on AIJCast speaking about the Risking Faithfully cohort. We'll be back with more of our conversation in just a moment, but first, a quick word. As always, I encourage you to visit the AIJCast website, AIJCast.com, where you can find out more information about our guests and our artists, including their news, information, and products. And if you want to find out more about the Risking Faithfully cohort, the program is now accepting applications, financial aid, and scholarships are available. You can find out more about the program as well as apply online at pts.edu slash dmin. Also want to let you know that on November 1st, I will be co-preaching at Park Avenue Baptist Church with my friend Safwat Marzouk. Safwat is on the faculty at Anabaptist Mennonite Biblical Seminary. You can find out more information about this and so much more on our website. Just go to AIJCast.com. And now back to more of our conversation about the Risking Faithfully cohort at Pittsburgh Seminary. We pick up that conversation speaking more about the program's focus on decentering whiteness. Leanna Fuller speaks. In the planning process, it was important to us, those of us who actually work at the seminary, to include several conversation partners, some at the seminary, some through the ministry collaborative, who are people of color and who could help guide us in this area. That was a really important piece of the planning. And also, we have a really strong commitment to having a diverse cohort of instructors. So even though we cannot necessarily provide all those instructors from within our institution, we're committed to finding the best people to teach the individual courses and to making sure that we have adequate representation of diverse voices, not just in the readings that we're providing, but also in the instructors themselves, because that is very critical from our point of view. The other thing I'll say is that I actually think it's also very important for white people to model doing this work. I don't think it's sufficient for us to say, well, let's just invite people of color to teach us about this. Uh, We need to be doing our own work in these areas. And so from my perspective, it's important to have both white people and people of color together working in these ways because the challenges for each of us are going to be different depending on how we identify. For white students in this cohort, they will have a particular kind of work that they need to do. And for students of color, they would have a different set of 
tasks. As Jennifer has said, we all have to work on decentering whiteness because it is pervasive in our society, yet whiteness does not affect us all in the same ways. And so we will need to be wrestling with that. I remember as we were planning, one of the moments that was just so helpful for me, we were talking about this issue about how each of us brings a different element to this conversation. And we all have our work to do, but but Adam Mixon, one of our planners and just a genius of thinking through some of these things said, I am not your free black tour guide. Now, those were his words. It's sort of like in this moment in our culture, when people look to people like Adam and Jennifer and go, well, tell us what to do, you know, and it's like, no, no. Uh, the conversation should have started a long time ago, and I am not going to hold your hand through this. You have work to do. And so some of the language that evolved out of that, one of the things we said was, if you are white in this cohort group, your whiteness will be decentralized. And if you are a person of color, you will not be made responsible for the enlightenment of your white classmates. Well, I I love the stuff we're talking about, and we've really hit two of the nodes of this podcast really well, which is faith and justice. And the third node of this podcast is art. And Jennifer, I appreciate you bringing in bell hooks uh, as an artist in their own right. I'm wondering what role art and artistry play in this cohort or what they might bring to the table, so to speak, in this process of disruptive pedagogy. Well, I'm wondering if Ben might want to say something about the course that you and Denise are planning to teach in this cohort, because I have a feeling that improvisation and some other aspects of artistry come into that. Yeah, Denise Thorpe and I taught a class this past January, which is some of how I got into this conversation. And the class was death and resurrection as practices of the church. And there were a lot of underlying assumptions that we brought into that experience. And one of them at its core was this simple notion that people do not attend church or go to worship to learn about God. They go to experience God. And pivoting worship experience and church leadership away from an informative stance to an experiential one is one that for me is always intergenerational and multi-sensory and tactile in lots of different ways. And so one of the things we said as we designed that course was then let's make this course like that in terms of the visual aspects of the course. So for example, we only met at the seminary, I think twice that entire week. Uh, The rest of the week we were in a climbing gym and an improv theater and a couple of different church settings, but community centers as well. It was really cool. One day we met in a former bar that had been turned into a new worshiping community. And then that evening we had dinner at an old church that had been converted into a bar. And there was this (laughs) kind of visually arresting experience that we were processing. And then we, throughout the week, we threw in experiences that were, you know, we were always getting out Sharpie markers or crayons or cloth to say, what does it look like to make manifest some of the insights that we're leaning into this week? And that wasn't to just sort of appeal to different learning sensibilities, although that it does do that. I think it also challenges leaders in churches to say, people are not going to church to learn about God. They're going to experience God. And what parts of what we do together are experiential? I mean, I think 
Many are. The Eucharist is an experiential moment in worship, but it's in many worship spaces, it's the only one. So yeah. I think there's an artistry in how we roll out this way of um, doing a demon program. Mm. There has to be. I feel the collective energy of the institutional church yearning in a heartfelt way to get back to normal. Normal was killing the church and we were managing decline with normal. We need to fight that instinct. And this is the disruptive pedagogy and do something different. And part of that is saying this isn't about cramming one more tomb of information into people's heads. It is about experiencing the holy in an entirely different way. And if we're not using art to do that, then I think we're doing it wrong. Yeah, and I just want to add to that. It also, not just experientially, but also in terms of sources of wisdom, that artists, I would also say mystics, contemplatives, have a different way of seeing and a different way of seeing the world. And the way theological education has been going, we have privileged certain types of knowing and certain types of seeing. And so being able to bring art and different types of voices also allows us to see and to engage and to experience differently. I've traveled pretty extensively around the world. It's been a blessing. But one of the things that I notice is that when I go places and you go to museums and things, so much of the art that is valued is spiritual art or religious art from ages past. And I often wonder, what is this time's contribution? What is our spiritual art? What is the religious art? What are we saying theologically in this time? And I think that if there is this disconnect between artistic communities and the church, then the art that will be left will be a product that doesn't really encompass the totality of what is going on right now. And I think right now, the creatives and the creative fields are separated from church work. There are so many clergy people who are creatives themselves who don't even allow themselves to engage creatively in the work of ministry that they do every day. And so for us to be able to engage holistically and authentically, we have to be able to embrace that part of ourselves and to be able to use that as a part of our seeing, our knowing, our experiencing, and also our practicing as well. That's so good. I think this also leans into one of the other values of this cohort, the notion of shifting paradigms. And what I hear in this, and I'd love to hear you comment on this, is a shifting of a paradigm away from how do we take art and move it into the church? How do we incorporate art in the things that the church is already doing, as opposed to how do we take the artistic imagination and have it help us and lead us and decenter ourselves? Is that a fair way to put it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. I think that I'm not sure who said it earlier. This is about dissembling the church box that we have been operating out of. And part of that is we have to take down the walls 
and resist putting them back up as we rebuild. I think part of what is happening in this moment is that so many of the systems that have served at the bedrock foundation for society and for our world are cracking and breaking, which means the systems upon which they stand are cracking and breaking. And the church is in that. Instead of it being a situation where, you know, the experts in the classroom, the professors, the institutions teach the students, this is an opportunity for all of us to come together to offer what we have to kind of open ourselves up and say, what is it that hasn't been working? And start from the ground that most of this has not been working the way that it has been. So let's just disassemble the box and let's come up with something else. And that artistic eye helps us to see this may not be a box. It's not going to be a box. This may be not even one thing. It may be a collection of many things. This may be a circle. This may be a paper mache. Who knows (laughs) what this thing is that is being constructed. But I, I really think it's leaning into, you know, we love to talk about the creation story and we love to talk about God as creator, but we act like God stopped creating when God created the church the way it is. Wow. And it's really giving us an opportunity to lean into the creation that is happening now. It's not just, you know, dislocation. It's not just destruction. It's creation in the midst of. And that is where we are trying to center this program. I can hear the voice of churches I have served in the past or voices from within those congregations, I should say, saying, the church shouldn't be so political. I know how I would answer that. I would love to hear y'all speak into that. I don't think we have to spend a lot of time there, but I do think it is an important thing to speak into. Are you asking that because of the decentering whiteness piece specifically, or just more generally? I think particularly as we talk about race and racial politics and decentering whiteness, that's one of those things in American society where suddenly political hackles get raised in certain quarters. So, yeah. I guess... Just my initial reaction to that is, first of all, I think there's probably a difference between being political and being partisan. So I think that anytime you deal with issues of power and justice in your environment, there is inherently a political dimension to that. And if we just want to get right down to it, the gospel is political. That's what I would say. Because, you know, Jesus also (laughs) challenged authority figures and power structures of his day. So I think there's a strong argument to be made that questioning those things that are harming God's people is really following Jesus. It's not advocating for a particular political candidate necessarily. Those two things don't always have to go right together. And it doesn't mean that you hitch your star to one political party and say that's always how Christians are going to vote because then that would just be trading one idol for another probably. But that being said, I think if we're not preaching and teaching and advocating and leading God's people toward greater justice, then we're not doing our job. Although I have served a church myself and know what those pressures are, to stay away from certain topics or to 
as you said, not be political. I'm not sure that I ever felt I could be authentic and have integrity as a pastor if I did that all the time. I do think it's a fine line between advocating for particular political stances and candidates and preaching the gospel. Those two things are sometimes very close together in my mind. But I do think there can be a difference, and I think we're called to live into that. Leanna Fuller, Jennifer Watley-Maxell, and Ben Johnson-Crace on AIJCast. You can find out more about the Risking Faithfully cohort program being offered by going to pts.edu slash dmin. We've also got links about each of our guests in the episode notes and on our website. On our next episode... Part two of our conversation on the Risking Faithfully cohort. AI Jcast is made possible through the support of listeners like you. We can only do what we do because of your support. So please just take a moment. That's all it takes. And go to our website, AIJCast.com, and click on the link that says support. And we love to interact with you on social media. We are there on a multitude of platforms where our handle is AIJCast. Our theme music is by our house band, Mard Fame. And we are engineered, mixed, and produced by the somewhat ribald Al Mudif. Al's latest hobby is upcycling, and he is excited by its creative possibilities. It's not going to be a box. This may be not even one thing. It may be a collection of many things. This may be a circle. This may be a paper mache. And I'm your host, Martha M. Sanders, encouraging you to go, rather stay put, create some beauty of your own, and remember that there's no true beauty until the world is beautiful for all. Make it so. Mm-hmm.